following message is presented by First Baptist Church of Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Now the message. Folks, I don't know about you, but I am too blessed to be depressed. (laughs) I am too blessed to be stressed. You know, there are some times when, when life gets you down. There are some times... When you get sorrowful, uh, things happen, life happens. We all experience it from time to time. But those are the times when you really, really, really need to cling to the promises of God. Amen? Amen. You can say amen. That's all right. It's okay to get excited. Look, I'm pretty sure there was over 80,000 screaming fans in LSU Stadium last night. And I don't get it because they'll scream like a mad Mohican at a football game, but they'll come and sit like a wooden Indian in church service. We have something to be excited about, folks. Jesus Christ has paid for our sins. We are forgiven. We have been redeemed. We have been blessed. But also we get to live with the promise that one of these days he's coming back. Living he loved me. Dying he saved me. Buried he carried my sins far away. Rising he justified. Freely forgiven. And one day he's coming. Oh glorious day. Man that that is the blessed hope. That we as believers cling to. That is what keeps us going. This could be the day that Jesus comes back. Man, if it, if it wasn't enough to know that God loves me, Jesus died for me, if that doesn't get you excited, then thinking about the return of Jesus Christ should really, really, really keep you going. How do we know that God loves us? I mean, man, from a, from a little bitty boy in Sunday school, I can remember some of them old songs that we used to sing. I used to love Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee. I remember those songs. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery, but I'm in the Lord's army. That was one I used to love to sing. But there was one song that I would never, and I, I find myself humming that tune. In times when I get down, I, I remind myself this by singing this song. Jesus loves me, this I know. Man, that, that's a promise right there. That should be enough for any of us. But why do we teach that song to little kids? Because there's one basic element of the Christian faith. Jesus loves me. But how do we know that? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. If you're not involved in a Sunday school class or a Bible study or a small group of some sort, I want to highly encourage you. Get involved. We have several great Sunday school teachers. Miss Melody, Mr. Mike, Brother Ray Broussard, who's not here. I teach the youth. We have Miss Helen. Miss Charlene, Miss Janet are teaching the children's class. And the purpose of Sunday school is for you to know that Jesus loves you. And the Bible tells you so. To help you get deeper and deeper into God's word. And to read in God's word that thus says the Lord. To find those promises to cling to. I wasn't really anticipating preaching on, on this particular topic today. I had something else in mind, but we kind of rearranged a few things. I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about why we believe that God speaks to us primarily through his word and how his word can be trusted. How do we know that the word of God is true? Our Sunday school lessons for the past week have been talking about Jesus in the role of a prophet. Jesus came with three primary roles, prophet, priest, and king. Not only was he our Savior and our Messiah, but while he was on this earth, he fulfilled the prophecies of the Old Testament as our prophet, our priest, and our king as well. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, 2 Peter chapter 1 is where we'll be for our primary reading text. And uh, it's one that I reflect on all the time. It's one that you should be familiar with. It tells us about... Uh, how we know that the prophecies of God, how the word is God is true, and how we can rely on it. I'm going to tell you a few. So we, we covered in our Baptist faith and message, we studied it uh, last year, and we went through that, and we learned that one of the very first articles that it writes on is the priority of Scripture. And we're going to read that article here in just a moment. But let's all stand for the reading of God's word. 
We began on the prophets last week when we talked about Isaiah. He is the first of the major prophets. And we'll be talking about the prophets over the next few weeks. But how do we know that what these prophets said and what they spoke were true? They would approach kings. They would approach cities. They would approach kingdoms. And they would say, thus says the Lord. Here's the message that God gave me. And a lot of those prophets wrote down those exact words that they were delivering. Some were words of encouragement. Some were words of hope. But most of them were words of judgment. But a lot of those prophecies were messianic prophecies. There are literally over 300 messianic prophecies in the Old Testament predicting the time of Jesus' birth, the exact location that he would be born, the fact that he would be born of a virgin, the method of his death, that he would be buried in a borrowed tomb, that they would gamble for his clothes, many, many other things in those small details those prophets predicted with pinpoint accuracy, and every one of them came true. And at the end of this sermon, we're going to talk about some prophecies made by Jesus himself and other New Testament writers that has not come true yet, and that is his second coming, his return, the rapture of the church. Here's what Peter has to say about the accuracy of Scripture and how we know that Scripture can be trustworthy. Beginning in verse 16, Peter writes this, For we did not follow cunningly devised fables, which we made known to you uh, the, uh, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, When such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This is what they heard when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This is the Mount of Transfiguration that Peter, James, and John got to be a part of. Verse 19, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light It shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, and this is key right here. If you don't key in on anything else, verse 20 and 21, uh, highlight them, put a star by them, uh, underline them, however you mark things in your Bible. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that we can see many things in your word, but primarily your love for us. We thank you that we can read about the life of Jesus when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now we just pray, Lord God, that as we explore your word, as we explore the trustworthiness of your word, we just pray, Lord God, that you would bolster our confidence in what your word has to say. Help us to find those promises, Lord God, and cling tightly to them. Help us to dig into your word, Lord God, in those times when we think that we can't make it and we need that extra strength. But I pray most of all that during these next few moments, Lord God, as we read these passages, as you'll reveal to our hearts, Lord God, the promises that are found about your return And how we can live our lives telling others about the hope that is found only in Jesus Christ. And we just ask it in your most precious and holy name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. The overarching thing of scripture is that right there. God's grace, his mercy, and his love from us. From the moment Genesis is written to the time that... Revelation is concluded. Each and every chapter, each and every verse, each and every book, the theme is Jesus Christ from beginning to the end. But how do we know that we can rely on the accuracy of Scripture? Scriptures have been translated. We have literally uh, dozens of translations these days. Uh, The New Living Translation that I read out of just a moment ago is one that we're using right now to go through in a year. Uh, what I usually preach out of is the New King James Version. Uh, a lot of you will stay to the King James Version till the day you die. Uh, God bless your soul. Thank you for being uh, so faithful to that. But there are more modern translations these days that we go to uh, that bring the language up to date. 
Uh, New King James Version is one that I like to use time and time again. I don't know what translation you use. Here, here's what I want to know. I want you to know about translations. If you read the Bibles, God's going to speak to you. It doesn't matter what translation it is. Most of the translations are made in a way to where they are either formal or functional. The formal is the King James Version, the old 1611 King James Version. And the more functional translations are the NIV that have the more modern language included in them as well. But here's what I believe about the Word of God. I believe it has been accurately preserved. I believe that it has been accurately translated. And no matter what English version you use, it is a translation from another language. So how do we know that God has accurately preserved His Word? We are a Southern Baptist church. And uh, back in the year 2000, they adopted what is known as the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Several men sat down and they wrote about what our uh, foundational beliefs are on 21 different topics. But the first topic that they wrote on, Article 1, is on the Scriptures. And here's how we as a church here in Morgan City, Louisiana, First Baptist Church, a, a member of the Southern Baptist Convention, here's how we feel about the Scriptures. It says that the Scriptures, uh, the Holy Bible, was written by men divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation as its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us, and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony of Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. So to summarize that, you've heard me say this about the Bible before. We believe that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, inspired, eternal, authoritative Word of God. Everything that we do here is going to be reflected from the Scriptures. It's going to be based on the Scriptures. And I hope that that is how you live your life, that you would say that your decisions that you make in everyday life are based upon what you've seen and what you've founded your life upon in the Word of God. So here in First uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, we see these very things. We see that the Word of God is inerrant. It is without uh, any error. It is truth without any mixture at all of error. Peter opens up by saying in verse uh, 16, we did not follow cunningly devised fables. He said this stuff that we're telling you, it's not fairy tale. It's not fable. It's not something that we made up. We didn't go chasing after a ghost. We didn't go chasing after some story. But Peter said, we saw this with our very own eyes. And the things that we're writing to you about, we were a part of it. He said, on the day that Jesus was baptized, we heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. How do we know that Jesus rose from the grave? Because there were over 500 eyewitness accounts to the fact of him being alive after he rose up from the grave. He visited people. He came in, in, in large groups and two people, singular people. He even came back to Thomas just for the matter of helping Thomas to believe that he was resurrected from the grave. Because Thomas made a challenge. He drew a line. He said, uh-uh. He said, unless I see the, hand, uh, the nail scars in his hands and his feet, Unless I can put my hand inside, he said, I'm not going to believe that Jesus is still alive. And for that very purpose, Jesus came back eight days later, said, Thomas, come here. <laughs> he said, I want you to see that I'm real. And that what I said about my resurrection came true. So Peter is saying here that the word of God is truth without any mixture of error. It's not some made up fairy tale. So here's the thing. If we doubt the scriptures... If you, in your heart, if you have any shadow of a doubt about the scriptures being true, then how can you believe it on the matter of 
salvation. If you can believe that the, the, the Bible is false on any other topic, whether it be marriage, whether it be finances, whether it be anger, whether it be the way you conduct yourself, if you have any doubts at all about the accuracy and truth of the scriptures, then how can you base your salvation on the scriptures? Here's what Jesus had to say in John chapter 17. It's known as his high priestly prayer. As he prayed over his disciples, his disciples of that day and his future disciples as well. This is us that he's praying for. In John chapter 17, Jesus talks about God's word being the truth. And in John chapter 17, beginning in verse 14, Jesus says, I have given them your word And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Listen closely to this. Sanctify them by your truth, because your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. Not only is the word of God inerrant, truth without any mixture of error, but the Bible is also infallible. It is incapable of making any mistakes or being wrong. Verse 19 Peter says this, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed. What in the world is he talking about? Peter knew the Old Testament. He knew that the life that he saw in Jesus, the three years that he walked with him and lived with him, he knew that all of those Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Here's the thing about the, the, the Bible. It's going to always accomplish what it sets out to do. Those words spoken by the Old Testament prophets, they were going out to accomplish a purpose. Not only were they to warn the people of that time that if they don't repent, that the judgment is impending, but he was also allowing others to say, hey, here's what the Messiah is going to look like. Here's where he's going to be, and here's how he's going to live his life as well. We, we looked at a prophet of Isaiah last week. Before Isaiah could make any of these prophecies, what did he have to go through? Jesus talked about it in his high priestly prayer that they should be sanctified by your word. Isaiah had to go through this process of sanctification and consecration. The removing and purging of his sins and making his life clean in order for him to be able to pronounce God's word. And when he did... Isaiah 55, 11 says this, So shall your words be that go forth out of my mouth. They shall not return void, but they shall accomplish that in which they are sent out to do. The word of God is inerrant. It is infallible. It is totally trustworthy. And for the believer, it is the strongest and most dependable weapon that we have In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul lists the gospel armor. He gives you several mechanisms that are for defensive purposes only. The helmet of salvation, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, your belts girded with truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith. But then he said there is one weapon that you can trust to attack the enemy with. One offensive weapon that I give you in your whole arsenal And it is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And when you read through the Word of God, you will find it uh, described as many different things. It's a hammer. It's an anvil. It's a fire that consumes. It is a sword that cuts to the heart of the matter. It is a light that shines and illuminates your path. But the Word of God is totally trustworthy. It is infallible and it will never, ever fail. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There's another song that we learned in Sunday school. 
Not only uh, Jesus loves me this I know for the Bible tells me so. But there's another one. The B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. I stand alone on it because it is totally trustworthy and it will never, ever fail. Let me tell you something. If you read it in Scripture, you can bank on it. It's going to happen. God gives us those promises so we can trust in Him more and more and more. The more we walk with Him, the more we learn from Him, the more Scripture we consume, the more we will know that I can trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not to my own understandings. And in all my ways, I'm going to acknowledge Him through His Word, and He's going to direct my paths because His Word never fails, and it is totally trustworthy. Not only is the Word of God inerrant and infallible, but it is also illuminating. Verse 19, he says, uh, You will do well to heed God's Word as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. One of the central chapters about the Word of God takes place right in the middle of your Bible. Psalms 119, the longest chapter of the Bible. The longest chapter of any book of the Bible. And the majority of the scriptures found in Psalm 119 speak of God's Word. And in Psalms 119, beginning in verse 9, it gives us a prescription of how our way can be cleansed and how God's Word is used and how it can illuminate the dark areas of our life. Listen to me, young people. Here's what the Word of God has to say about setting your sights on living a holy and pure life. Yes, it is worth it, and yes, you can do it. This culture wants to corrupt you. This culture wants to brainwash you, and this culture wants you to think that there are no benefits whatsoever to living a godly, wholesome life holy life but there are listen to what God's word has to say it actually asks the question how can a young man cleanse his way man I have people come to me all the time brother Tracy I'm struggling with this I have things happen in my life that I don't know how to how to get rid of them I have temptations that come my way each and every day that I'm battling I have fights And wars going on inside of my mind, inside of my heart, and I don't know what to do. You know what the first thing I ask them is? When's the last time you read your Bible? (laughs) How often do you get into the Scriptures? Because that's going to show you exactly what you need. I don't care what you're going through. I don't care if it's a temptation. I don't care if it's anxiety. I don't care if it's worry, stress, anger. Lust, whatever the case may be, there's going to be something in this book that will help you through that situation. Because just like Peter said, it's going to illuminate those dark areas of your life that you can't deal with on your own. A lot of people say, you know what, I I want to become a Christian, but I got some things I need to clean up in my life before I do that. No, you don't. You can't do it. What you need to do is you need to come to Jesus first and then he'll clean you up. Because here's what Psalms 119 says. It asks the question. It begs the question. How can a young man cleanse his ways? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. And then later on in Psalms 119, 105 The writer of this psalm actually says, Your word, O Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I need my way cleansed. I need to know how I can make it through this dark world. And Psalm 119 gives us that answer by using God's word to illuminate your path, your every step, your every thought, and your every action. The Bible is just like a spotlight. When you read it, God begins to bring matters in your life out of the darkness and into the life. You'll, you'll begin discovering struggles that you didn't even know existed because God says, here's something that's going on that you haven't dealt with yet, and you need to deal with it. You see, the Bible is not just a book that you read. The Bible is a book that reads you. 
And when you open up the pages of Scripture, you're saying, God, I want to know what your voice says. I want to know, thus says the Lord on this matter that I'm going through. Hebrews 4.12, I I alluded to this a while ago. It tells us that God's word is like a two-edged sword. It's not just a one-edged sword. It doesn't just cut when it goes through, but it cuts when it comes out as well. And it gets to the heart of the matter. It cuts both ways. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. So if you're in a dark place right now in your life, might I suggest you spend some extra time in the Bible today. Not just here when we're in church, but I'm talking about when you get home after a while, after you eat lunch, and before you take your big old Baptist nap, get out the Bible and say, God, I'm struggling right now. I need something to refresh me. I need something to wash over me. I need something to cleanse me. I need something to illuminate my path. I need something to energize me and get me excited about living my life for you. And I promise you, you'll find something in God's Word. It will help you. We, we have many different resources here. We have a library full of books that can help you study. Uh, we make sure that there are devotionals like Our Daily Bread uh, that are available to you that will give you something to feast on each and every day, something for you to meditate and marinate on. And I guarantee you, if you'll start reading these things, more than likely on the day that you're struggling with something, this is going to hit on a topic that you're going through that you need help with. I want to suggest that you spend some extra time in the Bible today and allow God to shine his love upon you through his word. So we see that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, and illuminating word of God. But the Bible is also the inspired word of God. Look at what Peter says in verse 20 and 21. Knowing this first, Peter says, I want to get this out of the way first. These aren't just words that I made up on my own. These aren't just some random thoughts that I began spewing out and writing down on paper. But Peter says, no, no, no. The the Bible that you're reading, these prophecies, they were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God himself. He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Just like last week when Isaiah was consecrated, when that coal touched his mouth, his sins and his iniquities were moved. He then began to speak to the people the message that God had put upon his heart. And it was at that point that the Holy Spirit of God that had complete control of Isaiah. And many people think that that's how those prophets operated. They were actually enveloped. They were consumed They were completely surrounded by God's Holy Spirit and God began speaking through them and the Holy Spirit began moving their pen and writing down on paper the words that God would give them. 2 Timothy 3 verses 16 through 17, Paul says that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped For every good work. And in the Greek language, that word inspired right there literally means God breathed. It is the word theopneustos. I don't know very many Greek words. I can't have very many definitions for you. But I do know that one word is essential to understanding the inspiration of God's word. Theopneustos. Pneuma is is breath. It's wind. Just like we know the word um, pneumatic, pneumonia, it all has to do with your lungs, your, your air, your breath. The word theopneustos means that God literally breathed those words in through the prophets and onto the pages of the Bible. So the Bible that you hold, the canon of scripture that is in your head, it is literally warm with the breath of God. And there are only two things in Scripture that we see God breathed life into. In Genesis, the Bible says that God picked up clay from the earth and he breathed the breath of life of it and man became a living being. But here in 2 Timothy 3, we see that God breathed life into the Bible through the prophets. 
Many people say, well, you know, the, the Bible is just an old antiquated book that's written by men. That is true in a sense. It is written by men, but we believe that the scriptures are of a dual authorship. It's equally right to say that Paul wrote the book of Romans, but it's also equally right to say that God wrote the book of Romans, but he used the Apostle Paul to do it. How how do we know that the Word of God is inspired? How do we know that it's trustworthy? How do we know that it is without error? How do we know that these men were qualified to write the words God was giving them through his Holy Spirit? Let's go back and look at Isaiah chapter 52. I want to give you just a few of the Old Testament messianic prophecies. After Isaiah was consecrated and set aside to speak to the people, and as he began writing, many of his uh, writings were on messianic prophecy. They spoke about the coming Messiah. Isaiah 52 and 53 are just some of the highlights Beginning in verse 14, his visage was marred more than any man. This is talking about the beating that Jesus took. He was almost recognizable as a man. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? John twelve thirty eight. Jesus said, I, I came to these people and they didn't recognize me as the Messiah. They did not believe. They saw the miracles. They saw his works of God, but still they did not believe the report that he was bringing. He shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Isaiah 11, 1 speaks of the coming Messiah being out of the root of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. We know that Jesus was of the lineage of the family of David. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men. John chapter 1 says that he came unto his own and his own received him not. They literally rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Matthew 8 verses 16 through 17 it says that Jesus went around healing people, removing their sicknesses and their infirmities. Verse 4 here says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. You say, well, you know, anybody could have written that. Maybe it's just coincidence. Is that exactly what I... Listen, this happened 700 years before Jesus was even born. These prophets were writing and predicting about things that would happen They didn't know what they were writing about at the time. But now we see clearly through the New Testament fulfillment of these prophecies that God's word is inspired and it's trustworthy. And all of these prophecies have come true. It goes on through uh, chapter 53. Uh, They made his grave with the wicked. He was crucified between two thieves, two other men who were accused of doing wrong. They were wicked. They were rightfully accused, whereas Jesus was innocent. But with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence. What is that speaking of? Jesus was buried in a a rich man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, let him be buried in his tomb. Why was Jesus buried in a borrowed tomb? Because he knew he would only need it for three days. (laughs) That's exactly what it was speaking of. And only rich men would have a grave similar to what Jesus was buried in at the time. By his knowledge, down in verse 11, by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall be justified, uh, shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. And then at the end of the chapter, It says that he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. John 17, the high priestly prayer, that's what he was doing there. He was making intercession for us. And then as he hung on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth, what did he do? He prayed for those around him. He said, Father, 
forgive them for they know not what they do. All of these prophecies of Jesus Christ came through with amazing accuracy. However, there is still one event that yet remains to have taken place. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew 25 and 28. Jesus also spoke of it in John 14. Jesus says, I must go away. He says, if I go away, remember those conditional clauses? He says, if I go away, then I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. Jesus says, I've got to go away, but one of these days (laughs) I'm coming back. One of these days when you least expect it, he says, I'm going to part the eastern skies. And in a moment, in a twinkling of eyes, fast as the lightning flashes from the east to the west, I'm going to take back those that belong to me. Paul spoke about it in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 52 through 54. He says, in the moment, in the twinkling of eye, the last trump, for the trump shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. John writes about it in the book of Revelation. Paul writes about it again in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. He says, For uh, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says these are words of comfort that we should live on. These are words of comfort that we should give each other on a continual basis. He says, for by this we say to you, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. And then he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Folks, if you're not comforted by anything else, just know that this life that we're in right now, at any moment, Jesus could come back and take us to be with him. In the moment, in the twinkling of eye, we're going to hear that trumpet sound one of these days. And just like Paul spoke of, just like John spoke of, and just like Jesus spoke of, we will rise to meet Jesus in the clouds. Now there is a difference between the rapture and the second coming. The rapture is when we rise to meet him in the air. The second coming is when Jesus comes to earth to set up his millennial reign. There are many, many words throughout the scriptures. There are many, many places we can go to find comfort. But for the one who has been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ, for the one who is a true child of God, there should be nothing more comforting than knowing that at any moment Jesus could come back and take us to be with him. That's good news. That should get you excited. That should keep you going. That should keep you on alert. Because Jesus says it's coming at a time when you least expect it. Just like a thief in the night. He doesn't announce his coming. He doesn't let you know. He doesn't give you any warning signs. Over this summer, these students, these parents, they've been looking at a date on the calendar. And that date was going back to school. They've been able to prepare for it. They've been able to go to Walmart and hit all the back to school sales and get all their supplies, get their clothing ready. They anticipate it. Some of them anticipate that day. Some of them dread that day. <laughs> but that was a date that you knew that was coming. You knew the day before, I've got to get up in the morning. I've got to go to school. It's time to go back to school. But the coming of Jesus Christ is going to be something that we can't get prepared for the day before. We've got to be ready at all times. We know it's coming. And just like going back to school, some people are excited about it. Some people are anticipating. But for some people, it's not going to be a joyful day. 
Because there will be some that are left behind. Those who don't know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, they will be left behind and they will experience the unleashing of what is, is related to as pure hell on earth, known as a tribulation. You don't want to be around for that, folks. So right now, you need to make sure, if that happened at this moment, will I be here or would I be left behind? Would I rise to meet Jesus in the air and be with him forever? Or would I remain here on the earth? But the second coming is something that keeps us focused, folks. And as we learn more and more and more about hearing from the Lord, we want to hear, look, how can I know that these warning signs are coming? Somebody was talking about all the earthquakes a while ago. How the earth is in birth pains, these expansions and contractions. That's what an earthquake is. They're becoming more and more frequent. They're becoming more and more severe. And that's just one of many signs that we can look at. Jesus said, you'll know the seasons, but as a time and day, you will know not. Because not even the angels in heaven know, only God himself. God's word, you can go to God's word, you can find hope in it. You can know that God's word is trustworthy, it's inspired, it's infallible. And it's something that many, many, many people reflect upon to find joy, to find strength, and to find hope. And in 2 Peter 1, 16 that we started off with, Peter says that we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter said, just as the Lord came the first time, he has promised to come back again. In 2 Peter 3, 9, Peter says, God is not slack concerning his promises. When God gives you a promise, you can bank on it. And Jesus said in John 14, 6, if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself. There was a man in the uh, middle to late 1800s by the name of Horatio G. Spafford. He was a Presbyterian layman. He was a successful lawyer also in the city of Chicago. And in 1871, Spafford lost most of his real estate investments due to the Great Chicago Fire. Just before the Great Chicago Fire, Spafford and his family had endured the loss of their son as well. And throughout all these losses and these two tragedies, Spafford decided it was time for he and his family to, to get away for a little while to have a little rest, to have a little vacation. So he booked a trip to Great Britain. They were all going to sail together, but a a late moment uh, business transaction came up that he needed to take care of. So Spafford sent his wife and his four daughters on ahead of him on a ship sailing for Great Britain. He planned to join them a few days later when all of his business affairs had been taken care of. While they were there, they had planned on uh, assisting D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, and Ira Sankey during their revival campaigns. However, in November of 1873, his wife and his four daughters set sail for Great Britain on ahead of Horatio Spafford. But on their journey, as they almost reached their destination, their ship was struck by another vessel and sank within 12 minutes. There weren't very many survivors, but when all the survivors were gathered up and recovered and brought to safety, Spafford's wife sent a telegram back home to her husband. And the first word that came across was the word saved. But the next word that came across was alone. Spafford's wife was the only one of his family that it had survived that shipwreck. His four daughters had drowned. And as Spafford made his way to Great Britain to join his wife, as the story goes, as tradition says, that Spafford sat on the seashore close to the area that his four daughters had drowned in that shipwreck and had perished, and he penned this hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, 
It is well. It is well with my soul. Think about that for just a moment. Of everything that that man went through, and as he was writing that song that we know, it is well with my soul. Where did he find his hope? Where did he find his joy? It was all through God's word and what God says in his word. While the first verse reflected on his sorrows during this time of tragedy, the next two verses reflected on the redemption that he has in the Lord Jesus Christ. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole. It is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. But that's not the highlight of the song. The last verse is the one thing that kept Horatio Spafford going during this time of tragedy and during this time of loss. It was something that he was able to find in Scripture. Something that gave him hope and gave him a promise of one day seeing his son and his four daughters in heaven. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. That was the one thing that Horatio Spafford could reflect on. It gave him hope and gave him assurance that even though these sorrows that he was going through in this life were like sea billows rolling all over him, almost more than he could bear, he says, there's one thing that I cling to more than anything else, and that is the blessed hope of one day being able to see my Lord Jesus Christ and my four little girls and my precious son one day in heaven. Let me ask you this question. Right now, if you were to close your eyes in death, what would be the first thing that you would see? The Apostle Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Or if the trumpet were to sound right now and the rapture were to take place and we were all to rise and meet him in the air, would you meet Jesus or would you remain here on the earth? The Bible says it is only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that you can live with that promise that one day you'll be with him in a home forevermore. John 14, 6, I've mentioned it several times. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. And then he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. You can't do it on your own. Jesus Christ has already done it for you. Ephesians 2.8 says that it is by grace that you are saved through faith and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. Have you received that gift yet? Do you know for sure that if you die today, you would spend eternity with the Lord in heaven. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Today could be that day when that trumpet sounds. Today could be that day. Maybe when your life ends. I don't know. I'm not trying to predict something grim. I'm not trying to predict something bleak. But death is a reality that we all have to face. Ecclesiastes says that there's a time to live and a time to die. Eternity is too long to procrastinate right now while you're here on this earth. And that's coming from a person who is the biggest procrastinator that I know of. But that's one thing that I have not put off. I know for sure that Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior and that heaven is my home. Because I know that as a 17-year-old boy... I bowed down on my knees, I confessed my sins, and I asked Jesus to come into my life and save me. Perhaps you've never done that before, and this invitation is for you. 
The Bible says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The first thing you need to do is admit that you've sinned. God, I'm a sinner. I'm lost. I'm dying. I'm going to hell. And I need you to save me right now. And based upon the promises in God's word, he will do that. The Bible says, first of all, you must believe that Jesus died in your place, was buried in a borrowed tomb and rose three days later. The Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Will have everlasting life. Not might, not possibly, not hopefully. But the Bible says you can live with that assurance of knowing that heaven is your home and that Jesus is your Savior. And what you need to do right now is you need to confess. You need to call out to God. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Another promise of God. If you need to do that today, this invitation is for you. In just a moment, when this music begins, I'll be here at the front waiting for you. All you have to do is take me by the hand and say, Brother Tracy, I want Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. And I'll help you begin that relationship right here and right now. That way when you leave the doors of this building, you'll know for sure what will take place when Jesus returns. Heavenly Father, we just come before you this morning. And Lord, as your word has been spoken, as your promises have been proclaimed, as Christians begin praying for those around them, Lord God, we just ask that you would move during this invitation time, that people would do business with you, Lord God. And you've also promised that your word will not return void. So I'm asking for hearts to be touched and lives to be changed. We just ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. The preceding message was presented by First Baptist Church in Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ or about First Baptist Church, including contact info, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.